Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan, his son, in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was in Gibeah, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all his Israel heard it and said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped at Michmash to the east of beth -Avon. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes, in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him with trembling. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, Bring the burnt offerings here to me, and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offerings. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offerings, behold, Samuel came. Samuel said to him, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me, and you did not come within the appointed days, and the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal, and the rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin, and Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. And Saul and Jonathan and his son, Jonathan his son, and the people who were present with them stayed in Geba of Benjamin, but the Philistines encamped at Michmash. This is the word of the Lord. Well, uh, good morning, Church of the City. It's good to be uh, with you this morning. My name is Spencer. I am a pastor here for Church of the City, and I'm excited this morning. As uh, Nick said, we are going to begin a new series centered around the theme of waiting. Uh, many of you know, some of you won't, 
but for a year, I got rid of my smartphone. And it, it's really embarrassing that in our modern world, that sounds like an accomplishment. For one year, wow! Um, I'm now back using a smartphone, which is a story in and of itself that I won't uh, bore you with here, but if you want to know why I am back on the smartphone train, you can talk to me later. But uh, I was using a dumb phone for one calendar year. And one of the most surprising aspects of that for me was rediscovering the experience of waiting. Waiting in line somewhere, you know, in, in a restaurant perhaps. Uh, waiting when you're on uh, public transportation or just a passenger in the car. You're just sitting there uh, while, while the, the drive is happening. Maybe you're waiting at a restaurant for somebody to arrive and you're just sitting there waiting. Uh, waiting, our, our world, our modern uh, world has done all that it can. We have done all that we can uh, to eradicate the experience of waiting, haven't we? Or to at least minimize it as much as possible. Think about next day shipping. I don't know if any of you were in the same boat as I was, but now every online retailer gives you that date before Christmas. Order by this date and you will get your package by Christmas. And I was duped because somebody at Mountain Equipment Co-op did not realize that the, there was a winter storm coming. And so my package, which they swore was going to be there by Christmas, was there a few days after. Uh, and I felt a, a grave injustice, right? And that shows you uh, what our world has come to be like. There's, uh, there's that little uh, dinosaur game on Google Chrome. I don't know if you've ever played that, but when your internet drops out, rather than having to wait 30 seconds for it to come back, you can play that little video game. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, I may have just changed your life. Um, just hit the space bar next time you see that dinosaur, and all of a sudden you're playing a fun little game. Um, we have uh, instant pots, right, when uh, normal dinner takes too long. And when there is no way to avoid waiting, when it simply has to be endured, we have a phrase that we comfort one another with. And the phrase is this, it'll be worth the wait. It'll be worth the wait. What's the implication there, right? That waiting is bad. Waiting is agonizing. And if you simply are stuck there and there's nothing you can do, then hopefully there'll be something good on the other side. It'll be worth the wait. Why do we go to these great lengths to avoid waiting? Well, waiting is uncomfortable, isn't it? It's, it's frustrating, it's inconvenient. And, you know, we could talk about this at length, but I think, again, in our modern world, we've come to view anything that's uncomfortable or painful as something that is bad and thus something to be fixed. Let's engineer a solution for this. This is part of this continual pursuit of being our own gods, isn't it? We can fix anything that makes us uncomfortable or feels inconvenient. We'll solve that problem and our lives will be better. And I'm not saying that the, the uh, annoyance at waiting is a modern phenomenon. I think human beings have never liked waiting. We just happen to be much better at solving the problems around waiting today than we have ever been before. The psalmist said this, in Psalm 119, my eyes long for your promise. I ask, when will you comfort me? For I've become like a wineskin in the smoke, yet I have not forgotten your statutes. How long must your servant endure? When will you judge those who persecute me? 
Human beings, I believe, have never enjoyed the experience of waiting. As I said, we're just better at solving the problems, perhaps, than we ever have been before. Why are we talking about this? Why are we doing this series on waiting? Well, many reasons, but perhaps the the central one is that we as a church are entering into a time of transition, and likely a time of waiting. Uh, A a transition, uh, a staffing, uh, realignment, all of these things. And these transitions take time. Uh, My father, for a little over a decade, was uh, the lead pastor of a church, but now he is in a uh, coaching and consulting role with our denomination, the Fellowship of Evangelical Baptist Churches. They really got to focus group that name and shorten it a little bit, but uh, he's in a coaching role with our denomination, primarily around staff transitions. And uh, he, as you know, he's been a great uh, uh, confidant to me in this whole transition that we're going through as a church, and And he said early on, this will take time. This will take time. And so if this transition could take a year or 18 months or maybe more, uh, how we view this time is important, is crucial. Is it simply something to be endured? Hang on. It'll be worth the wait. We'll make it. Or is this period of waiting, of transition, of some uncertainty actually a period to maybe be embraced, a time that God wants to do something unique that he can only do in this period of waiting. So let's summarize this little introduction. Human beings don't like waiting. It's uncomfortable. In our modern world, we've gotten really good at engineering solutions to waiting and all things that make us uncomfortable. But our church is headed into a season of transition and likely of some waiting. And we need to decide how we will view this time as a community. That's what this series is all about. So before we go any further, let's pray. And then we'll consider uh, some some scripture. Let's, Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Uh, thank you that in your orchestrating of the story of the scriptures, we see many instances, both in, in, on the small scale, sort of in micro uh, moments, but also in the big picture. We see waiting happening and you using it for good. I confess that I do not like to wait. I am a product of this world that we live in. I, when I want something, I want it now. And so, would you do this work of formation in me and in my brothers and sisters as we consider uh, waiting in the coming weeks? We pray this all in your name, Jesus. Amen. So I have two purposes this morning in this sort of introduction to this new series. Two purposes. Number one, to suggest that the scriptures paint waiting as not inherently negative, but uh, but as something which God sees great worth in. That there's actually great worth in waiting itself. I'm not going to talk about the why or the how that happens or what is 
the worth of waiting. We're going to I'm going to leave that to the coming messages in our series, and we're going to hear from some of our elders in the coming weeks, which I'm excited about. So I'm not going to get into all of that. I'm simply going to try and frame this point that the scriptures suggest that waiting has great worth. And secondly, show that at times, rushing ahead, moving forward when in fact we're being invited to wait is uh, the greatest danger. That the greatest risk is actually to, to rush, to, to plow ahead when we should be waiting. Those are my two purposes this morning. So let's start with number one. God sees great worth in waiting. I want to put uh, uh, an image on the screen. This is a, I think it's always, I think it started as a digital illustration. Maybe not, but um, this is Eve and Mary. Many of you will have seen this. I love this image. Uh, Mary is there consoling Eve bringing her hand to her womb where the Messiah is soon to be born. And it shows how one woman's courage and obedience would be part of the remedy for the first woman's disobedience. Love this image. But there is, at least as we consider our topic for this morning, there's a sort of a glaring flaw in this image. And that's that it completely minimizes or misses the generation, centuries-long wait that humankind, that all of creation would have to endure before the Redeemer would be revealed, before the coming of the Messiah. And in fact, after Adam and Eve's, after humankind's rebellion in the Garden of Eden, the only real glimmer of hope was actually an overheard comment that God made to the serpent, not actually to Adam and Eve themselves. If you have a Bible, look at Genesis 3, verse 14. Here's what it says. This is, these are God's words to the serpent. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. God goes on, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. If you've spent much time in the scriptures, maybe you grew up going to church, maybe you've heard the translation that says, he will crush your head, but you will bruise his heel. Theologians sometimes call this the proto-evangelium. That's our million-dollar word for this morning, isn't it? Uh, The proto-evangelium. What does that mean? Well, in this remark, again, not even directed at Adam and Eve, directed at the serpent, Uh, we hear the first messianic promise of the scriptures. That it wouldn't be like this forever. That yes, our adversary Satan had won a victory that day, but the tables would eventually be turned. Jack Collins says this beautifully. He says, Genesis, the book of Genesis, fosters a messianic expectation of which this verse is the headwaters. I love that. Genesis fosters this messianic expectation, and this verse is the headwaters. Satan, one day there will come one, 
and you'll bruise his heel. He will suffer at your hands, and yet through his suffering, you will be utterly defeated. And yet, as we said, that beautiful image misses. It would be generations upon generations before that Messiah would come, before that victory would be won. And so the story laid out in the scripture shows in the, the, the large arc, the, the big picture, and in the small, as we will see in the coming weeks, that God works out his own plans in his own way, by his own timing, and for his own glory. Let me say that again. The scripture shows us both in this big picture, this coming of a redeemer that would take centuries, and in small little ways as well, the scriptures show us that God works out his own plans in his own way, by his own timing, for his own glory. And you and I, as human beings, we have a choice with what we're going to do about that. We can rail against it, grab for control, as our first parents, Adam and Eve, did, or we can rejoice in it. We can rail against this, or we can rejoice in it. And if we can submit to this, that God has plans that he is working out day by day, then we will be deeply formed as we participate, as we grow in patience. Peter was trying to explain this to another group of believers who were not waiting for the coming of the Messiah for the first time, but were waiting for him to return. He wrote to some believers scattered over Asia, and he says this, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So we hear these words, and we realize, okay, things sometimes take a long time from our perspective. But Peter actually goes on. He says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Peter's words show us this, friends, not simply that God moves slower than we would imagine. Yes, this is sometimes the case, but God is simply, as I said, working out his own plans in his own timing for his own glory. And sometimes these things will seem to stretch on and we'll be thinking, when is God going to move? When is he going to act? And other times things happen in a moment, in the blink of an eye. And if we can embrace the uncertainty surrounding all of this, we will be better for it. Isaiah says this, the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. Blessed are all those who wait for him. God sees great worth in waiting. My second purpose for this morning, at times, The greatest danger for us is to rush ahead when we should be slowing down, when we should be waiting, pausing. Here's the thing. It would be easy for us to go through this whole series 
and to still think in the back of our minds, okay, all right, waiting is still awful and to be avoided at all costs, but if you simply can't, then the good news is God can do something good out of it, right? God can bring something good out of something ugly, like waiting, like sitting around. But that would be missing the story that the scriptures were trying to tell, because the stories in, in the library of the scriptures show us, make it very clear, in fact, that at times rushing into things is actually the greatest risk. And the quintessential example of this is the story that Sonia read for us. This uh, story early on in Saul's tenure as king over Israel. So to recap some of the context of that story, Saul has not been king for very long. If you have a Bible, you can go back to 1 Samuel chapter 13. He's not been king for very long. The Israelites are gathered for battle. But they're told to wait. Samuel has told Saul, wait. And this instruction, to see it, we have to go back to 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 8. Here's what it says. Saul says to, to uh, excuse me, Samuel says to Saul, Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. But Saul is gathered there with his army. He sees his men. He sees his, his army growing anxious. He sees some cracks starting to form. And Samuel said he would come within seven days. So on the seventh day, no Samuel. So Saul takes matters into his own hands, and he offers up the sacrifice that Samuel was intended to give. And then, immediately Samuel arrives. And he cuts straight to the issue. Right? He asks this pointed question of Saul. What have you done? And what does Saul say? Look again at 1 Samuel 13, verses 11 and 12. Saul said, When I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. So Saul here refuses to wait. Now, at times, commentators have said, well, this isn't entirely fair to Saul. You know, Samuel was late. So Saul, you know, didn't want to go into battle without having offered the sacrifices, so he did what he had to do. But here's a contextual piece that it's easy to miss, friends. Sacrifices were offered up twice each day, in the early morning and at twilight. And so you might say that Samuel based on his words to Saul, was right on time. And so if waiting can be formative for us as human beings, refusing to wait can be counterformative, or we might use the word deformative. And we see three ways that this happens in this passage. A refusal to wait deforms us in three ways. Number one, makes us disobedient. Remember verse 13 that Sonia read for us. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You've not kept the command of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. 
Saul refuses to wait and becomes disobedient as a result of rushing ahead. But then number two, waiting deforms us by making us defensive. Because whereas waiting humbles us, forces us to trust that God sees things that we don't, that his timing is better than ours, rushing ahead makes us disobedient and then we become defensive in order to sort of cover for ourselves. Think about how uh, profusely Saul attempts to pass the buck. It actually harkens back to Adam and Eve there in that conversation with God in the garden, right, where God says to Adam, what have you done? And Adam says, she told me to do it. And God says to Eve, well, what have you done? And she says, well, that snake, that strange speaking snake told me to do it. What does Saul say? Saul says, well, the soldiers, they were leaving, and you, you didn't come. You were delaying uh, Samuel and the Philistines. They were assembling. He becomes defensive. All sort of humility, trust, openness is gone. The walls are coming up. And lastly, a refusal to wait makes us demanding. What does Saul say? So I forced myself and offered the burnt offerings. One commentator, Robert D. Bergen, says it so succinctly. He says, it's ironic that the king believed that he could obtain the Lord's favor through an act of disobedience. It's ironic that the king believed he could obtain the Lord's favor through an act of disobedience. And yet that seems to be the sort of equation going on in Saul's head, isn't it? Well, so Samuel was going to offer the sacrifice. He told me to wait seven days. He's not here, so I have to offer the sacrifice, and then God will bless us in the battle. So I would now turn it to you, turn it to us. What about your life? Where are you being invited to wait? Because this has implications for us as a church, but it has implications for us as individuals as well, doesn't it? Perhaps there's a relationship in your life, romantic, platonic, whatever, where you are uncertain of what to do and you feel like you should just wait. And yet that's uncomfortable. That's awkward. Maybe it's a position at work. Will, in his announcements, talked about the next session of our uh, Wisdom in the Marketplace series. Uh, our, our previous session was career and calling. And we had some great conversations around what do you do when you have aspirations for another position and yet that door hasn't opened for you yet? Maybe you are in that situation. Maybe it's simply a purchase in front of you, big or small. And you're trying to think, do I wait on this? Do I just go for it? I, I am a researcher of when I make a purchase, I'm a researcher. I go to the guides. I want to know what's the best one. And the problem for me is, even if I think this purchase is a ways off, once I've done my research and I know what the best thing is, I'm going to go and buy it. Uh, because I know this is the best one. Why would I wait? It's a problem for me. Waiting, friends, can be a powerful tool in the hands of God to shape us if we will humble ourselves enough to give up control. And so on a very practical level, on a, on a micro level, zooming in, if this is something you struggle with, maybe it's simply waiting before you speak. Here's a practice for you. Stop. Take some deep breaths. 
and practice that welcoming prayer we talked about a number of weeks ago. See if maybe God has something to say to you in that moment. No one has ever gone wrong by saying, yeah, I waited to speak there and I really regret that. (laughs) Stop, breathe. Maybe you'd simply need to sleep on it. That's like age-old wisdom and yet we seem to have forgotten it at times, right? Well, if I sleep on it, then, you know, next day shipping, it's going to be days before this thing arrives. Days! But this is true for us as a church as well, friends. Because in the coming months, I already feel this, there will be temptations to leap ahead at every turn. We're going to hear from Cam in a moment, the current chair of our elders, and we have lunch every couple of weeks and talk about various things, and and I was doing this in our, in our last lunch. I was saying, yeah, this hasn't happened, so maybe we should just go ahead and do this. And he said, ah, aren't you preaching on waiting on Sunday? And I said, this lunch is over. And I left. The temptation for us, friends, will be to, let's just, let's just get the posting up. Let's just, let's just make this higher. Let's just do this. Let's do this. We can, we can compensate for this by doing this. And I feel, friends, deep down that we are being called to wait to invite the Spirit to show us what He wants this community to be in the coming months and years. And so I want to give the last word to someone I consider to be sort of like a a spiritual mother to me, Beth Moore. Um, I grew up in the South, and Beth Moore is very much a product of the South, and so she just says things in my language sometimes. Um, And then she also says funny things on Twitter, which I love. Um, But she said this, In Scripture, waiting isn't passive. It's a watchman on the wall with anxious, even joyful expectation, watching the horizon, not for the thing, but for God, knowing He will show up. And then she says this, and if you were here last week, I did not plan this, okay? Beth Beth and I were just on the same uh, wavelength here. She says, Colossians 4.2 describes it perfectly. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. So I hope you are praying at 4.02, as I invited us all to do last week. And I had a couple people say, I'm praying at 4.02. I can't remember why, but I am. Uh, It's Colossians 4.2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Even if at 4.02 you can't remember, what was the verse again? Don't worry, you can still pray, it's okay. Let's be, this, this sort of daily kind of prayer is a form of waiting for us, isn't it, friends? Day by day, saying, God, do what you're going to do in your timing for your glory. Let's pray. Spirit, uh, come and do this um, very countercultural uh, work in us. Make us a people who are content to wait on you. Your timing, uh, your purposes, who are less and less concerned with our own uh, comfort, um, our own certainty, our own control, and more and more concerned about your glory. As Will said at the start of our service, more and more people having encounters with Jesus so that our city looks more like heaven. And we trust that you are going to do that. 
and that it won't always come about when or how we expect. But we are here, and we want to be used by you. And we pray this in your mighty name, Jesus. Amen.